Hello and welcome to another edition of the Lancet Psychiatry Podcast. My name is Niall Boyce, I'm the editor, and I'm at the Georgia World Congress Center in Atlanta in the United States, of course. I'm here for the American Psychiatric Association's annual meeting. This is an absolutely huge conference center. It's the only one I've been to which has its own waterfall, which you can probably hear in the background. Over the next few days, thousands of psychiatrists from the United States and around the world will be coming here. I'll be talking to a few of them about their research, about the past year in psychiatry, and about where they see things going in the future. When the Syrian conflict started, it seemed a very long way away to those of us in the US and Europe. But over the past 18 months, it seems to have become progressively closer. We've seen television images of people fleeing the conflict, often in very desperate situations, arriving on the shores of the islands of Greece. I'm joined today by Nicole Paris from George Washington University, who's a psychiatrist who has been to that area, has seen for herself what's going on, and has made an assessment of the mental health needs of this population. Hello, Nicole. Hi. So could you tell me a bit, first of all, about how you got involved in this project? Well, it was really kind of something that happened all of a sudden. I wasn't uh, uh, in any way planning to go uh, to Greece, nor was uh, global mental health something that I had paid uh, particular uh, attention to uh, prior to uh, the work that I, I did in Greece. My mentor, Dr. Alan Dyer, uh, received a phone call from the founder of uh, Remote Area Medical USA, Stan Brock, uh, and he was uh, told that there was a significant psychiatric need uh, over in Greece in regards to the Syrian refugee crisis. I happened to be walking by uh, Dr. Dyer's office, uh, and he asked me you know, if I was free in three weeks and wondered if I uh, would be willing to go to help address uh, uh, some of these needs and do a psychiatric needs assessment over there. So that was literally it. A message, are you free in three weeks? Go to Greece. So when you got there, you must have felt a bit disorientated by things and as if you were learning as you went along almost. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think looking back, uh, my disorientation, the the quickness with which this project and this uh, trip came together and um, and the learning on the go, not knowing really what I was supposed to do, where I was supposed to be, and, and, and how I was supposed to pull off answering a question I didn't know I was supposed to answer. I think that looking back, it really did mirror a lot of the um, I think the, the journey for Syrian refugees who were coming over not knowing uh, where they were going to go, not knowing if they were going to be welcome, not knowing how they were going to get there, if they were going to survive. I mean, I, so um, I think that in that way it actually added uh, to my understanding and my and added depth into, into, I think, the process uh, of what they were going through. As I mentioned, uh, we've really become familiar, all too familiar with these terrible images on our, our television screens. Uh, but of course, you were there in person, you saw what was going on, you talked to these individuals, and you got some insight into what's happening within their minds and the response to these situations. One thing which you mentioned was what you called the refugee mentality. Could you tell me a bit about what, what you mean by that? So uh, I was referring to migration mentality. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that uh, before I came over, before I went over to Greece, I thought, you know, that the, the there would be a bunch of refugees completely traumatized, you know, I don't know, crying all the time and, and 
kind of completely devastated by what was going on. Um, and I think that they were, but it, it wasn't in the way that I expected. Um, what I saw was a lot of stoicism. What I saw was a lot of planning. What I saw was, you know, people who made a treacherous trip, you know, falling to the ground, thinking, uh, you know, th- thanking God or all spirits that they were alive, then picking themselves up and moving forward. That was, I thought, really amazing and something that I didn't expect. Uh, So it seemed, I think, on the surface that, oh, these refugees were perfectly fine. They were moving along. But the more uh, the more time I spent there, the more I realized, you know, that's really not the case, that what they were doing was surviving. What they were doing was trying to get through. And, uh, And I think we all kind of uh, have a certain sense of that process, you know, when there's something, when there's adversity, you know, you kind of pick yourself up, you get through, and really, you know, kind of all of the psychiatric trauma or or need uh, can show itself afterwards. And of course, these people are fleeing a terrible situation in Syria, but having fled the situation, their problems aren't over, and, and I believe you found all sorts of problems facing uh, these these individuals. More than I could have imagined, I, I believe. I mean, I, I think I understood that, yeah, that, that maybe that there would be a lot of people displaced, and maybe that there would be, some, you know, xenophobia, things like that, that they would be dealing with. But there was there were other things that were were going on, uh, such as child marriages. You know, lots of unaccompanied minors being poached by uh, sex traffickers. Uh, there were domestic violence issues. There were concerns about families separating from each other, never being able to see each other again. I mean, and I think even just the most basic things where there were just some people coming over completely alone and really not knowing what the next step was. And that I think was as basic as that was probably the the, the most emotionally charging for me. And here you, you've hit on really a problem, which is what can a psychiatrist do in those situations? Because you're not really talking about the kinds of things uh, like depression or schizophrenia or, or even PTSD or these other diagnoses which we tend to sort of gear towards and, and treat people. I mean, do you think that there's really a role for um, psychiatry in here? You know, I had the same question myself before I left because I didn't really understand, you know, what was I going to do? I was thinking to myself, well, what was I going to do? I can't really do therapy for these people and, you know, in, in the situation they are in. And, you know, what really is the role of medication going to do in this way? And and it became pretty clear quickly that, yes, traditional psychiatry was not going to be particularly applicable at this time in this place, especially when they were... Uh, in active migration. But that that still doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't a need, which we clearly saw. And so one of the ways that we uh, came to understand was that a different type of psychiatry model was needed. And and where we pulled from was uh, social psychiatry, population psychiatry. What did the whole community need uh, as opposed to any one particular individual? And that, when we asked that question, it was a little bit easier to answer. What we saw was that, well, one, they needed safety, they needed warmth, they needed housing, they needed food. Those are some basic things. And the other things were, you know, kind of they needed um, assurance, understanding, they needed 
information they needed to be dealt with respect and they and I think that um, what they needed was overall uh, a system in which that that could help promote resilience and uh, foster this migration mentality so that they can make it to the end and then when they get there it would be you know maybe where traditional psychiatry would be more helpful potentially and so in this way you know a psychiatrist acting one-on-one no you're right isn't going to to be effective in the way that it is here where the stat uh, the population is static um and the and there uh, isn't an ongoing kind of trauma. Uh, But there, you know, we found that, you know, kind of addressing populations' needs as a whole, trying to figure out, uh, well, what does the population as a whole need? And in that way, we were able to come up with some recommendations. And so it's, it's a sort of non-traditional model of psychiatry in a way. But I'd just like to go back to a very traditional bit of psychiatry, which is being aware of your own reactions within the clinical environment, within the therapeutic setting. And I'd just be interested, uh, as, as a last thing to discuss, to talk about your own reactions, your own emotional reactions to the situation and, and how you dealt with them. You know, I I was surprised at my reaction. Um, and I think that my reaction, if you if you take a look at studies or, or what other people have gone through was pretty classic. At the same time, I was really surprised that I had the reaction I did. The first, you know, I, I thought when I would go over there, because I really, because, you know, I was, I lived in America. I didn't follow politics very, you know, closely. And, and so I felt in the beginning quite inadequate to be able to bring help in some way or felt like maybe I'm not the person who can understand this the best, um, and I thought I wouldn't feel connected, and that was something I was really afraid of. The opposite was true. I did feel very connected, and when I was there, I think, you know, I, I definitely um, was acutely aware of all of the things that I was feeling, and, uh, you know, at one point it, while I was watching a group of refugees land on the shores of Lesvos, and in thinking about uh, actually my own family who are refugees in America, came over from Vietnam, I had kind of this moment of very intense connection uh, and seeing those people uh, come to the shores safely and without harm, you know, really did it bring tears to my eyes. I, I, I felt bonded to, to this community and this problem. And then, you know, I went about the work. What's interesting is that, you know, I really didn't have an emotional, a strong emotional reaction outside of that, you know, that one connection until I went home. And I think that in reflection, this really mirrors again what we predict that this, that the refugees will be going through, that they are moving, they're working. And, and just as I was, I was there, I was seeing a lot of very intense, very traumatic things and hearing a lot of traumatic stories. And, you know, I the part of me that had to survive and and serve the people of the refugees and, and, and do my job, you know, that emotional connection for me was close. And it wasn't until I got home that that really did come flooding back. And, um, and it was difficult. I felt, you know, emotions of, you know, helplessness, anger, 
despair, things that I didn't think that I would feel. And, and in the end, it really was through the support of uh, Dr. Catherine May, our team leader, um, and um, supervisor, Dr. Alan Dyer, and, and my family and colleagues, uh, did I uh, was able to really process, uh, you know, really what I had seen and what that meant for me, what that meant for the world. And so if I can have a reaction like that, that for me was incredibly powerful. I can't imagine what the emotions of the refugees, when they stop moving, you know, I can't imagine the intensity of what they'll have to deal with. Thank you very much, Dr. Paris. Well, let's hope that uh, those refugees do reach safety. Let's hope that when they reach safety, they have the support which they need. And let's also hope that the situation which they're fleeing has some sort of resolution and soon. Actually, I'm really happy to to announce that George Washington University, in a follow-up to the work that uh, I did, is planning to send another team back to Greece, now kind of working uh, with uh, Syrian refugees who are kind of more static, not migrating, uh, stuck in refugee camps, and and they're planning on doing some of the things that we had, you know, initially recommended in the research that we're presenting today, which is teaching home mobilization techniques, teaching uh, psychological first aid uh, to some of the volunteers and trying to really still bring and actually address some of the needs that we uh, discovered. Dr. Paris, thank you very much. Thank you so much. One of the big stories in psychiatry over the past few years has been cannabis. First of all, the links between cannabis and psychosis, and then, of course, the changing legal status of cannabis in uh, various countries around the world, including the United States. I'm joined by Dr. Kevin Hill from uh, McLean and Harvard Medical School, who... Well, this is really your specialist area, isn't it? That's right, it is. And you're here at APA to talk about this whole issue of cannabis legalization and... what it means in terms of the use of cannabis and possibly the health effects of it. That's right. Well, as you mentioned, the trends are definitely towards more countries uh, favoring the legalization of recreational use of cannabis. And the United States, for example, will have about 10 states uh, in the United States considering legalization this year. Overall, in the United States, about 58% of Americans favor legalization. So. Uh, It's important to talk about what the details will be, how will these things be implemented, and and unfortunately a lot of the devil is in the details. Some states have done some things well, some things not so well, so it's critical to talk about how each of these states are going to approach key issues uh, like taxes, like advertising, like effects of cannabis upon driving. Well, let's talk about this issue of legalization, because there's a question as to what it really means. Does it mean decriminalization, or does it mean, and this is like the odd situation of medical cannabis, which which I think a lot of people say, well, that just means essentially recreational cannabis by the back door. Oh, it is in some cases. So there are really three levels of legalization in the United States. The first one is decriminalization. So that means that small amounts of marijuana should be allowed for personal use. If you get caught with typically less than an ounce of cannabis in the United States, that is not a criminal issue. It's a civil infraction. And so many states have decriminalized cannabis. Um, Medical marijuana is is the middle ground. So that is identifying the use of medical cannabis for specific medical conditions. And at this moment, in May 2016, we have 24 states and the district that have medical cannabis. But you're right. And one of the things that we'll talk about today is that there is evidence for the use of medical cannabis for a handful of medical indications, but part of the problem in the United States is that we have people using medical cannabis for a whole host 
of medical indications. And then finally, the final frontier, as you mentioned, is legalization of the recreational use of marijuana or cannabis. And so in the United States, that means treating cannabis like alcohol. In other words, those that are 21 and above are allowed to use uh, recreationally. And so many states, that's full legalization. And many states are considering it. Right now in May 2016, we have four states and the District of Columbia that have legalized recreational marijuana. So let's talk about the health effects. Now, um, last year, Lancet Psychiatry published a paper by Marta DeForti on high-potency cannabis, yep. skunk as it's called, and its relationship to psychosis. And I was really interested because there were two totally different views on the same data set. So some people were saying this just goes to show how dangerous cannabis is and it should stay outlawed. There were other people saying, well, perhaps drug laws mean that you can pretty much only buy skunk on the streets of London. And if we had uh, a more liberal legal situation, you'd have access to less harmful forms. So legalization would actually perhaps have a beneficial health effect even. Uh, you know, the same data set, totally sure. different views. Where do you stand? Well, I think one key factor when you look at D40's paper and also several other key papers that have come out is that people tend to fail to address the issue of dose. So dose matters. How much marijuana you use over what period of time makes a big difference. Heavy users will have the increased ability to express uh, the genes for psychotic disorders as D40's paper showed. And so uh, the reality is in the United States and in most other countries, when people are using cannabis recreationally, they're using on the weekends like they would alcohol. And so for those cases, you really are not going to see those adverse outcomes that are in the papers like the DeForty paper. Another issue to talk about, which I think is interesting with that excellent paper, was that in the UK, skunk weed is typically about 13% THC. And in the United States, while the latest published data that came out earlier this year shows average THC content is roughly the same, about a little under 13%. The reality is, in the United States, if you buy cannabis on the street or if you buy it in a dispensary, potency is going to be much higher. So the plant itself will be in the 20s and 30s. So I think the fact remains that's a very important paper because it demonstrates what we already knew in some ways, that if you're using cannabis daily, multiple times a day, you could have bad outcomes. I think it, it does get blurred sometimes with the idea that the reality is when people use recreation, they're not using to that level. So I think it's another case where uh, proponents and um, those that are against marijuana uh, cannabis have distorted some of the evidence. Well, one of the things which I think concerns a lot of people, and it's a genuine concern, is that we're able as, as more or less mature adults to say, okay, if cannabis has a different legal situation, one might use it only at the weekend, you might only use it you know, a few times a year even. But what about younger people? What about people who are in their teens, whose, whose brains, whose minds are still developing? You know, Shouldn't we really think about that when we think about legalization? We should absolutely think about it, but when we do that, like everything, we need to be evidence-based. And so I think there's legitimate concern about the effects of cannabis use among the youth. But it's also important to look at what the evidence shows. And in Lancet Psychiatry in 2015, actually, Deborah Hassan from Columbia published an, an outstanding paper that showed that in the medical marijuana states, uh, there was not an increased rate of increased use of cannabis. So let's be clear, in the United States, cannabis use is on the rise everywhere, but the rate of increase did not change in the medical marijuana state. So that paper and some early data from Colorado seems to indicate that the policies do not change 
youth use to this point. So I think we should be concerned about it. We need to be very careful about how we implement these policies, but we also need to be based in, in evidence and not fear. Election coming up this year, do you think that's going to affect this increasing pattern of liberalization that we've been seeing recently? I don't. I don't think that the uh, election is going to change the trend towards increased access to cannabis for research. Uh, situation is not good. So right now it's definitely difficult to access cannabis for research purposes because it is a Schedule One substance uh, under, under the DEA's uh, auspices. And it's also important to point out that many people like to draw the distinction between cannabis itself and cannabidiol, as cannabidiol has been very, very promising in many research trials for a host of medical indications, including seizure disorders in, in a pediatric population. Cannabidiol is Schedule One as well. So what I think is likely to occur is that the, um, the government is going to make a statement, I believe, in the next month or two about cannabis overall. I think it's likely at that point we may see cannab cannabidiol rescheduled, but I'm not optimistic about uh, cannabis being rescheduled to a class which is probably more appropriate being class two. If the Democrats remain in, in office, they control the presidency, I think we're going to continue to talk about uh, rescheduling cannabis, but again, with President Obama, not much has happened. I mean, there's been a lot of talk, but really little progress has been made. Certainly, if the Republicans are able to gain the presidency, that's an entire wild card. Much as very few people are certain what uh, the likely Republican nominee will actually do in a host of areas, no one has very you know, an idea about what he might do in terms of cannabis. Certainly, he has not been in favor of increased access towards cannabis uh, to this point. So, so I think overall there probably will be little change, and I think there needs to be change, clearly. I think there is a lot of research that shows that cannabis and cannab cannabinoids um, are very promising in research, and the, the reality is, and I can speak to this firsthand, it's very difficult to do this kind of research these days with the host of regulatory hoops that are present. And let's talk about the international situation, because, of course, <coughs> narcotics have that, that international sure. political dimension. We have agreements between countries. And the interesting thing about the United States, one of the fascinating things about it as a country, is the way it's set up politically, that you have this immense individual political maneuverability of states, uh, to the point that, that that might begin to weaken the whole international uh, picture of, of treaties and agreements to, to clamp down on narcotics. Again, I, I know that there's that possibility that things may change. I'm not so sure that things will change much. I don't think they have. It's still federally illegal cannabis, and you're still violating um, some international treaties when you legalize cannabis in individual states. I think there needs to be a top-down change coming from uh, the federal perspective in order to really see an international difference. So, so I think overall, I think one important piece that we haven't talked about, despite the fact that from a lawmaker's perspective, there's talk about it, there may not be a lot of change. I think there is some change taking place among the medical community. I think there is a movement towards people understanding that there is additional research coming out each day about cannabis, its potential medical indications, also the adverse effects. So uh, there is clearly a push towards more research relative to cannabis, and we need it in multiple areas. We need more research into medical cannabis. We need more research to try to develop 
um, medications for those people who have cannabis use disorder. We also need medical marijuana or medical cannabis registries to see what is the impact upon medical cannabis uh, on communities that have it. And then finally, we need longitudinal studies, some of which have been done, but uh, that the National Institute on Drug Abuse, for example, is um, putting a lot of funds behind this ABCD study, which is an immense longitudinal study. So I think there are many people who do recognize the impact upon cannabis, good or bad, and are trying to find more answers, which I think is reassuring in many ways. So we need research. We need to, well, I was going to say we need to look before we leap, but we're kind of leaping <laughs> and, and trying to get the data, trying to sort of build the road in front of us as we go along, really. Absolutely, and, and that's one thing that I've said many times. I, I do think that policy is ahead of the science in, in the United States, and that's not a great place to be in. I think it's unfortunate. We have definitely uh, leapt before we've looked in many cases. However, I do think that the prudent, the pragmatic approach in many states right now is to say, is this likely to occur? If you live in a liberal state, like I do, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, where legalization is likely to occur, I think the real question at this point is not whether or not it's going to be legalized, but the question is, if it does get legalized, how do we do this in such a way to give people what they want while limiting the considerable risks? It's a big challenge. It's good that it's getting the sort of prominence at, at APA, and it's very good to see your work into it. So for now, thank you very much, Dr. Kevin Hill. Thanks for having me now. I'm joined now by Professor Jeff Swanson, who's giving one of the most interesting and uh, certainly one of the most controversial uh, presentations uh, we're anticipating at APA this year. Hello, Jeff. Hello. Thanks for having me. So your presentation is on gun violence, mental illness in the United States, and from a European perspective, on uh, harm minimization, uh, controlling access to means, my first question to you is, why not just ban guns? We might like to do that. We're a little constrained by the way that the United States Supreme Court has interpreted the Second Amendment to our Constitution, which is that it confers an individual right to possess a firearm. However, uh, the, the same opinion has said in, in Heller versus DC that the right is not unlimited and left in place certain long-standing restrictions for people uh, presumed to be uh, dangerous or uh, pose some risk. And I think that's an opportunity for science because how do we just decide what the limits should be? And I think we should do that using research evidence. One of the things which you're going to be talking about is a, a scheme which isn't about background checks. We've heard a lot about background checks. This is sort of going a, a stage further than that. The problem with background checks is there are so many guns out there in the United States. If all we do is stop someone uh, from purchasing a new gun at a time when they might be inclined to harm others or themselves, and they already have 10 guns at home, it's not going to be much of a deterrent. There are other problems with background checks. Um, one of them is that many of the people who are actually at risk, particularly of self-harm, uh, suicides, don't fall into any category of a prohibited person. So even if you have a perfect background check system, somebody inclined uh, to suicide uh, can legally buy a gun. They pass the background check. So this is a different idea. This, this is what we would call a risk-based preemptive temporary gun removal scheme. And it provides family members and law enforcement a tool, a legal tool, to separate dangerous people from guns 
even if they don't fall into a category such as having a history of involuntary commitment or a gun disqualifying criminal record of being a person prohibited from purchasing a gun. And um, we think this is actually uh, uh, an interesting idea. It's, it's a piece of, of the puzzle of gun violence prevention in the United States. It's not, this is not a one thing problem and we need a lot of different approaches. Background checks are important, comprehensive background checks are important. But this kind of a scheme uh, fills a particular gap, I think. And there are three states that have already enacted this kind of a law and probably uh, a dozen that are considering this kind of legislation. So let's get some idea of the scale of the problem. How many uh, gun-related uh, suicides are there in the U.S. every year? Right. Last year, the year for which we, uh, the most recent evidence we have, um, about 33,000 people died as a result of the gunshot in the United States, and two-thirds of those are suicides. And then another third or so uh, are homicides, and there's a tiny little fraction that are unintentional or law enforcement related. And then there's another, you know, 80,000 non-fatal gun injuries. Uh, so it's a, it's a big public health problem. I mean, there's no other, you know, source of injury mortality uh, or no other commercial product implicated in this many uh, deaths and injuries that wouldn't be considered a, a major public health problem, uh, except for the politics involving guns here in this country. You know, when we think about guns as a means to suicide, that's, it, it ticks just about every box for, for a hugely worrying problem. What we've got is something which is available, we've got something which is relatively easy to use, we've got something which can be used impulsively, and, and has very high lethality. Absolutely. Um, what we know about the epidemiology of suicidal behavior is that the people who die from suicide is the tip of the iceberg. You have a large number of people who have, say, depressive symptoms, who think about suicide. Um, there's a smaller but still a very significant number who attempt suicide. And the large majority of people who do attempt to take their own life survive, about 90% on average. And if they do survive, they tend not to die from suicide. They're at a little higher risk than if they'd never tried it before, but most people who survive suicide go on to die from something else at a later uh, age. That picture is turned upside down when we talk about guns, because if you try uh, to commit suicide with a gun, you almost never survive. You never get that second chance, because 90% of the people um, who use a gun uh, will, will die. That's why lethal means restriction is so important, uh, particularly with respect to access to firearms, because it's a, it's a great public health opportunity. Uh, it, it's the difference between, say, a, a young, temporarily uh, distraught, maybe intoxicated, impulsive young person uh, who feels hopeless, surviving that moment, um, or actually doing something that will be a, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. So this uh, law of, of gun removal, which three states is it operating in? Connecticut was the first. Yes. Uh, they enacted their law in 1999 right. in the aftermath of a mass casualty shooting. Um, it was instituted primarily due to concern for violence against other people, but in the way it's actually been used, uh, it's used mostly for suicide. And then the second was Indiana, also after a, after a highly publicized shooting. And then most recently, um, uh, just in 2014, California, the Gun Violence Restraining Order, which was enacted after the Santa Barbara shooting, um, the Isla Vista shooting, where a young man uh, killed several uh, um, uh, students uh, and 
the, the thing about his case is that his family had been very worried about him, had uh, called the police to check on him, make a social welfare visit, and they had determined he didn't meet the criteria to be detained and transported under California's involuntary hold uh, law. If this law had been in effect, they could have at least removed his cash and firearms. Okay, so if I were worried about a friend of mine or a member of my family, I knew they had firearms in their house, how would I go about activating this, this particular law? How does it work yeah, in it, practice? It, it depends a little bit on the statute, but um, in Connecticut, um, what has to happen is um, the police actually uh, obtain what's called a risk warrant. It's a civil court action with a public safety purpose. There has to be two police officers, two affiants, and it goes through a state's uh, attorney, and then a judge has to sign off on this. So, but it can be done in an expedited way, pretty much in real time, and there are ways to secure the guns before they get the warrant. But it actually, there is a due process concern because someone's uh, guns are going to be taken away. And then within two weeks, there's a judicial hearing, and a judge weighs in as to whether the gun should be returned to the person or should be retained for a year. Um, it works a little bit uh, differently in Indiana, where um, basically there can be a warrantless seizure, can be done without a warrant, um, and then there's a hearing. In California, there are categories of people who can initiate it, and family members explicitly um, and it's built sort of on the platform legally of the domestic violence order of protection. It's a, it's a civil action. It, it, it uh, by design, uh, does not create a criminal record. Um, so it's, it's, it's really a public safety feature of using civil court. Now, one of the big problems in suicide research is knowing if something works or not, because given the, the general population numbers of suicide being, thankfully, a comparatively rare event, it means trials are very difficult to run. What we, we tend to be limited to are before and after studies and best estimates. But bearing in mind all of those restrictions, do you think that these laws actually work? Do you think they've saved lives? Do you think if, if, the, if these laws were implemented more widely, more lives would be saved? We have some intriguing evidence from Connecticut. Um, in our analysis of 764 cases, I had not expected that we would find any cases of suicide in the period after these guns were removed because, as you say, the base rate's very low. It's about 12 per 100,000 per year in Connecticut. When we matched these individuals with uh, death records, we, we found, to our great surprise, 21 suicides, which is a, a relative risk of at least 15 times higher than the population. So it suggests in the first place that the law, as it's being implemented, somehow is selecting for people at very high risk of suicide. So if trying to find the person who's going to commit suicide is a needle in a haystack, now we have a much smaller haystack with a lot more needles in it. The second thing is, if we know that there are 21 people who took their own life, and it turns out only six of them in our study used a gun and 15 used something else, we know from research in Connecticut and nationally what the case fatality rate is, what the lethality is of each of these means, if they used hanging, for example, or a drug overdose. So what we can do by extrapolation is estimate the number of unsuccessful attempts, the number of survivors that would be represented by those 21 completed suicides. And it turns out to be 140 or so is what we estimate. That's the number of attempts over these period of years. That then lets us do a thought experiment because we can say, what if the guns had not been taken away? And instead of taking the bottle of pills or using the rope, they had had the gun. And 
and then we have a couple of scenarios because we don't know exactly, but we can estimate that it saved probably between 50 and 100 lives, depending on the assumption. Uh, and then you can create a ratio that says how many gun removal cases do you need to conduct in order to save one life. And it's somewhere in the range of 7 to 16. Now, whether that's high or low may depend on how you feel about guns and where you're standing. But I, that's what I want to put in the hands of the policymakers to understand what is in the balance of risk and rights. And that's exactly it. The, the, the issue is that science can take you so far with this kind of question and then social issues and political issues uh, kind of take it, take it from there. I mean, I know that one thing which uh, is of, of deep concern to various people in, in the mental health community is that whenever there is one of these terrible incidents of, of mass shootings, that mental illness is immediately pulled out as an explanation, that uh, people who have mental illnesses are felt to be targeted by this, that there is the risk about talking about mental illness and, and, and guns together, that we might inadvertently be propagating a stigma. Right. Absolutely right. We have two big public health problems here that intersect just a little bit. There's a problem with untreated mental illness and our fragmented and, and underperforming and under-resourced mental health care system. And then we have a problem with gun violence, and there is a little intersection between the two. It's not very big, but you know, even if we cured uh, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and major depression, which would be wonderful, our gun violence problem would probably go down by about 4% because that's not the answer to it. But we tend to focus on it when there's some kind of a horrible mass casualty shooting by a disturbed young man, and that becomes this kind of prism through which we see this problem. And the mass shooter is really atypical in two ways. Atypical of people with mental illness, the vast majority of whom are not violent, never will be. And atypical of the perpetrators of gun violence, most of whom don't have serious mental illnesses. But that becomes the people want to have a master explanation and say, well, let's fix the mental health care system, and that will address our problem with gun violence. And from a public health point of view, I think that's really going to come up short. And it also has the consequence of just increasing the... Uh, burden of social rejection and stigma uh, that uh, people with mental illnesses in the community uh, often bear. The political polarization of America is an increasingly big issue in the media and one of the things which it will impinge upon is research into uh, guns uh, and ultimately gun laws. Do you think that this is a problem in implementing the sort of laws that, that we've been talking about? Right. It, it is a challenge. I mean, when you're trying to um, do a public health law research on a topic that is politically radioactive, um, it's difficult to get funding because funding agencies um, are skittish about it. We had, in, in this country, um, we had a, a piece of legislation referred to as the Dickey Amendment, which prevented the CDC from uh, conducting research that would directly um, promote uh, gun control. Um, if you read the letter of that provision, it should not have prevented public health research on the causes and consequences of gun violence. In fact, it, it did have a chilling effect at the CDC and other agencies. Uh, and um, we really are hampered by a lack of knowledge of what works, and it's difficult to do that research. I think there is a move. I'm part of a group called the Consortium for Risk-Based Firearms Policy that is a very evidence-based uh, focus. It's trying to reframe the, you know, the, the kind of the mental illness uh, violence uh, nexus and say, let's focus um, on 
risk, actual behavioral indicators of risk, what we know is correlated with violence. So because we know that a history of any kind of violent behavior is far better predictor of future violence. And there are things that can be done like um, you know, violent misdemeanors, people who have a conviction of a violent crime that's not a felony so it doesn't rise to the level of being a gun disqualifier. Some states have decided to prohibit firearms from violent misdemeanors. California is one, and there's research that, has, that shows that that actually reduces risk of gun violence. That's something that all states could do, and we're recommending that they do that. You could st take it one step further. We know there's a correlation between problematic alcohol use and violence. And so we could say, well, if people have uh, multiple DUIs or DWIs, let's have um, a law at the state level that at least temporarily would uh, make those individuals prohibited from firearms. What about people who have a temporary domestic violence order of protection in the period before it becomes permanent, which might be a really high risk time? Um, States could say those individuals in that period when there's an ex parte order of protection in place, those individuals are prohibited from firearms. And then on, in the mental health arena, we have lots of people who are uh, detained in an acute mental health crisis, are transported, evaluated in an emergency facility, but they are not involuntarily committed. They are either discharged or they uh, sign involuntarily. But we know that's a period of risk, particularly risk for suicide. We could have, uh, as some states do, about half the states now confer a loss of gun rights uh, when someone is involuntarily uh, held, like in a 72-hour hold. That's another uh, policy that I think makes sense, but we don't really know if it works. We really need to do research on that. So in, in summary, it sounds to me as if, uh, as psychiatrists and scientists, uh, you can gather the numbers, you can present the data, but there's also some degree of, of political awareness needed. Yes. But I think that there's some common ground. Um, people who disagree on the politics of gun control, in my experience, don't fundamentally disagree that really dangerous people shouldn't have access to a gun. Um, and there's a wide swath of common real estate there. I mean, this gun violence restraining order is supported by a, a wide range of people. Actually, gun owners and people across the political spectrum do support sensible gun control restrictions. It's that the leadership um, is in a different place there in, in, with respect to the, um, the gun lobby and efficacy and so on. But I, I think, you know, we are never going to live in a world where we don't have angry young men and we don't have uh, people inclined to harm themselves or others. We should not have to live in a world where people like that have such easy access to such an efficient killing technology as a firearm. And I hope that um, we can bring, continue to bring research evidence to bear to help everybody realize that point and uh, to, at the same time, uh, institute solutions that are not going to infringe on the rights of lawful gun owners because that's the country we live in. So cautiously optimistic note to end on. Uh, Professor Swanson, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Something different now. Uh, we're talking film, so I have to say hello to Jason Isaacs and hello to Dr. Lloyd Sederer, who is the mental health editor for the Huffington Post. And uh, we're speaking after the screening of uh, film, uh, Timbuktu, at the APA. Good evening. Pleasure to be with you. Why show a film at a mental health conference? Films are a way of uh, getting past the cerebral. They're a way of getting at people's hearts, not just their heads. Plus, if you go to one 
endless lecture after another, what a pleasure it might be to watch a movie. And uh, this film, well, it was a very affecting film. Indeed, this was uh, Timbuktu, uh, which was about uh, the uh, a radical Islamic uh, inv- invasion, essentially, of uh, Timbuktu. And it's a story about how one group tries to oppress another, which is a universal story. It's interesting you say that about a universal story, because in the discussion afterwards, I felt that discussion went from the very specific uh, details of that political social situation, but then also to the more universal themes. Past and present, but there was a, some really wonderful discussion, and not just about uh, North Africa, but also about the Middle East, about uh, uh, the African co- continent, and I couldn't help make a connection to a biblical uh, Jewish oppression and the exodus. And also, I suppose, universal themes about humanity, about the idea of the destructiveness of humanity and, and the beauty as well. That was part of the, the tension of the film that came out in the discussion, which is on one hand you saw the uh, humanity and caring and love of some people. On the other hand, you saw in just such a painful way the cruelty and the venality and the hypocrisy uh, that also exists within all of us. So if you're listening and you want to check that film out, it's called Timbuktu. I think it was made in 2014. Um, I, it must have been because it was an Academy Award uh, a nominee in 2015. So what can we get from films in general in terms of uh, psychiatrists? What can we learn from them? Well, films are like uh, any really good form of uh, narrative. Uh, so uh, it's not that we only uh, have books, but we have uh, films, and we even have musical lines as a way of taking us emotionally, creatively, to uh, uh, surprising places uh, in our own thinking and in our own feeling. And I love films, and uh, that's one area that I've been particularly interested in. So what would your favorite mental health-themed film be of all time? I'll give you two of my top uh, films. One which actually won the uh, Foreign Oscar in uh, 2015, which was Ida, a a Polish film about a a Catholic nun uh, and uh, uh, connection to the Holocaust. And the other are the first two of The Godfather. I think my favorite would probably be uh, Frank. I don't know if you've seen that from a few years ago. Frank? Yes. No. It's a film about, well, it's based on a a sort of alternative outsider musician called Frank Sidebottom uh, from the UK, whose thing was that he wore a huge papier-mâché head. Um, Oh, yes. Yeah, but it's not not really just about him. It also brings in elements of um, other musicians like Captain Beefheart. Right. It's written by John Ronson, who wrote The Psychopath Test. Uh And it's a very interesting film. I don't want to spoil it for you but you think that it's going to go down certain narrative alleyways, and it doesn't. It's actually a very surprising and thoughtful and compassionate film about mental illness and about how people interact and about creativity. Well, thank you for the recommendation. It's going to be at the top of my list. Maybe that would be the one to show next year. That's an interesting idea, because we have to pick one for next year. This is our uh, second year in a row, and I think we drew a good audience, and I'm confident if we want to repeat next year, we'll get get that opportunity. Brilliant. Dr. Sedera, thank you very much. Thank you, now. So I hope that no one else I've interviewed for this podcast will be offended if I say that I've saved the best for last, uh, the new president of APA, Maria Akendo. Hi, Niall. How are you? 
I'm very well. How are you doing? I'm a little battle-weary, but very excited. That's very good. So um, you've got a year ahead of you as head of the APA. What are your priorities going to be? Well, I'm very excited to say that I'm interested in using partnerships towards prevention. And in particular, I think that we have opportunities to prevent mental illness by intervening early and by also intervening in ways that are not commonly thought of as being within the purview of psychiatric care. So if I could give you an example, we know that um, in many communities, corporal punishment is common and maybe even expected. But of course, we also know as psychiatrists that these are very untoward ways of rearing children. And in fact, several of us, many of us have heard horrific stories from our patients. And yet, people who grow up having been reared that way and disciplined in that way oftentimes don't have access to other behaviors in the repertoire. So imagine a partnership with pediatricians where we could have either a physician assistant or a caseworker in a waiting room talking individually with a mother with her newborn. But this, this requires a degree of cultural sensitivity. Surely. Oh, yes, yes. But talking about how to discipline children or how to set limits on children, how to shape their behaviors using positive reinforcement, uh, decreasing stimulation, for example, by giving them time out. These are very easy, easy methods to use, but are not necessarily familiar in all communities. And I think that just like we were able to make a big difference in terms of shaken baby syndrome, in the 80s and 90s, there was a tremendous push towards public health announcements and education, teaching parents, educating parents about the untoward consequences of shaking their babies violently if the baby wouldn't uh, be comforted, for example. I think that similarly to that, we could intervene with parents and help them by educating them about what other strategies they could use when they're feeling quite overwhelmed with their child, when they're feeling like their child really needs to change the behavior that they're engaged in. I know there's another one of your uh, big research interests is suicide prevention. Is that also going to be a priority for your year as president? Absolutely, and in fact it ties in with this theme very well because we know that child abuse is a very important antecedent for suicidal behavior. And so this together with things like early identification of the most common mental health disorders, whether it's depression or substance abuse or anxiety, we know that these types of disorders are very much predisposing towards suicidal behavior. And if we can act early, maybe even at the subsyndromal point, to intervene. And we, don't, we know we have behavioral interventions that can be useful, especially if you're not syndromal. And so using things such as motivational interviewing, which can be done by a caseworker with someone who's drinking too much but might not yet be addicted, or using behavioral activation for someone who has some depressive symptoms but doesn't meet criteria for depression. These are very simple behavioral interventions, psychosocial interventions that have a lot of evidence behind them, and we know that they can be delivered by people who are trained and supervised, but not necessarily with a medical degree. And as for psychiatrists themselves, what sorts of challenges are there to recruitment and training at the moment, and how will you address these? So I think we have a tremendous issue with recruitment and training, uh, mostly with recruitment because there's simply a limited number of spots available for training, at least in the United States. And we know that even though the OECD states that 
the optimal number of psychiatrists per 100,000 is 15. In the U.S., we're at 13. And that might sound like we're pretty close, but what that means is that there are many, many areas in the United States, incidentally, in the southwest of the United States, where suicide rates are very high, and there, there are very few psychiatrists. There may be only six per 100,000, as is the case with Idaho, for example. So how are you going to address this? How are you going to recruit more psychiatrists? So I think that one of the things that we need to do is to be realistic about the use of physician extenders. I think that even if we were able to double the number of slots for psychiatric training, that would take some time. And in the meantime, people are ill and suffering, and we need to do something today. So it's my opinion that really our best efforts will be engaging in group efforts where we use physician extenders to address the mental health needs of people with relatively simple conditions. So, for example, somebody who has an uncomplicated depression should probably be treated by someone with less training than a psychiatrist, reserving the time of the psychiatrist for the more complex cases or the more treatment refractory cases. So this is an unusual situation for me because I'm here in Atlanta, we're at APA, and we're almost having a discussion from a global mental health uh, perspective. Well, it's true that global mental health influences the way I think a lot. And interestingly, I feel that in many high-income countries, people think that global mental health means international mental health, but we have plenty of global mental health issues in this country. And so, for example, we have a wonderful uh, training program for uh, researchers who want to learn implementation science. And our next fellow, I'm delighted to say, is going to be working with homeless individuals in the city of New York. So I'd say that that's probably not a unique situation to New York. I think that we have plenty of issues in terms of access to care, in terms of really needing to deploy a workforce that can reach out to individuals who are suffering with serious and persistent mental illness or with serious uh, substance abuse problems. Let's talk about the people who really are, are at the center of all of our efforts, so that is the, the patients. And uh, despite progress over the past few years, I think the feeling is that there's still um, much stigma and much discrimination. How, how do you plan to address this? So there are a couple of things that I think are really, really important initiatives. One of the key ways in which we can do this is through advocacy. And the APA is extremely involved in advocacy, and we do this not only through our work on Capitol Hill, but also working with the press to send out messages about mental health and educating the public about the fact that these conditions, certainly the environment has an effect. There's no denying that. But these are brain diseases, these are biological diseases, and that stigma is attached to a condition simply because it's a condition of the brain is someone, somewhat uh, perplexing. So that's one of the things that we can do. The other initiative that I've been very enthusiastic about is an initiative that was started with the uh, European College of Neuropsychopharmacology in alliance with a number of different uh, neuropsychopharmacology uh, organizations. And in fact, this morning we had a wonderful symposium talking about the neuroscience space nomenclature. And you may have already been approached as a uh, editor uh, to think about uh, using this nomenclature. The idea being that it helps us get away from referring to medications based on the indication, calling medications, say, an antipsychotic 
or a antidepressant or even a second generation antipsychotic as if that had some intrinsic meaning to us and rather referring to the mechanism of action. It seems reasonable that doctors should know the mechanism of the drugs they prescribe. Absolutely, and it seems reasonable that we should, just like the internists who are treating hypertension, will tell you that they're going to put you on a beta blocker or on an ACE inhibitor, that we as psychiatrists do the same with our patients, educating them about the kinds of systems that we're trying to address in the brain when we prescribe a particular medication. So I'd like to end uh, by really talking about, I suppose, the, the big issue which, which goes uh, across the whole of American society, not just psychiatry, not just medicine, and that is, of course, the presidential election this year. Now, I'm not going to ask you to call it, uh, but I am going to ask you, what would you like to see as the priorities for the next president of the United States in terms of mental health care? So one of the things that the APA and I will be working very diligently on is ensuring that the platform of both the Republican and the Democratic candidate have issues included around mental health care, around access to care, around parity, around affordable care, etc. And so we're working very closely with the offices of all of the candidates to make sure that we can have be in the conversation with them and have a role in helping them think through the issues that the public needs help with in terms of mental health issues. Well, you've got a lot to do. You've got a year to do it in, so I'm not going to take up any more of your time. But uh, thank you very much for talking to us today, Maria. Thank you very much. Great to see you. Well, that's all from APA this year. Thanks for downloading the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and that you'll join us again next time.